0: Welcome to Invisible Arts with Richard Gibbs, brought to you by Armory of Harmony. This episode is called Everyone Needs a Carson. From the Tonight Show, starring Johnny Carson. This is Ed McMahon, along with Doc Severinsen and the NBC August. inviting you to join Johnny and his guests, Charles Nelson-Riley, Bo Derek, Pete Mountain, author Mickey Ziprin, and from the San Diego Zoo, Joan Embry. And now, ladies and gentlemen, here. It has been estimated that this little ditty all by itself garnered at least $200,000 per year in residual payments for 30 years for each of its two composers. Who are the composers? The music was written by a young Paul Anka. That's right, the guy who wrote the English lyric for My Way for Frank Sinatra and composed and sang She's Having My Baby, amongst many other hits for other artists. The more interesting part is is that this theme has lyrics written by Johnny Carson, never heard on the show. Paul Anka was smart enough to know that if Johnny wrote the lyric, he would therefore garner 50% of the residuals, incentivizing Johnny to pick his tune. And Johnny was no fool either. This episode is about a different Carson. It's about my lifelong friend, Carson Waters. When I was 12, my father divorced my mother. The remains of our fractured family moved into a little house in Daytona Beach. I didn't know a soul. The culture shock of moving to Daytona hit me like a brick wall. Daytona Beach was the illicit drug capital of Central Florida. Head shops were everywhere and the town was filled with the powerless anger of its racially segregated community. Born to be wild. Born to be wild. It was the summer before seventh grade. Entering junior high for the first time is a tender time for everyone, but for me, it was radical. My parents had just divorced. My dad was marrying a stranger 90 miles away in Jacksonville and about to have a baby with her. And my oldest brother, Tom, my hero growing up, suffered a psychotic break and attempted suicide while at Cornell. That will be another episode. Point is, I was a 12-year-old in shock. I was also a brainiac. Seabreeze Junior High was rough trade compared to my Opie experience in small town Ohio. Kids were constantly getting in fights. A gang of bullies ruled the schoolyard at lunchtime. Hormones were warping us all into different creatures physically and psychologically. Back in Ohio, my other big brother, Gary, had been a scrawny kid. He was determined to compensate for that. He studied judo and karate and joined the school wrestling team. Mats were installed in the basement so he could practice his throws and punches on his little brother, six years younger, me. I was his practice dummy. He taught me in slow motion how to fall without hurting myself. He showed me every thrust and parry and throw so that I could be his worthy little sparring partner. Everybody was Kung Fu Fight! Back to 7th grade. During gym class, a bigger kid began harassing one of my fellow brainiacs, a much smaller kid named Harris Dollinger. I told the big kid to leave my friend alone. He turned his bullying on me. The conflict escalated to the classic conclusion. He poked me in the chest. Meet me after school unless you're chicken. The challenge was set. We were to meet up at the senior high school practice football field that afternoon. I went home after school. Not sure what I was going to do. I was hoping to maybe bring my big, goofy, half-German shepherd standard poodle named George. Not that he would have done anything. Gary met me at the door with bad news. He had let George out, and George had run up the street and was struck and killed on A1A right by my school bus stop just before I got home. Hopped on my bicycle and pedaled up to the high school. Tears in my eyes and ice in my veins. Sure enough, the big kid was waiting for me, not knowing what was about to happen. There was the prerequisite circle of bloodthirsty kids egging us on. I looked at the big kid. I don't want to fight you, I said. What are you, chicken little man? I don't want to fight. He shoved me. I backed up. Suddenly, all of those training sessions with Gary came into focus. Combined with the rage I felt at the entire world, I turned in a classic karate stance, left shoulder facing my tormentor, right fist pulled back at waist level. He rushed me, ready to deliver a haymaker. Everything was in extreme slow motion. I stepped aside as he came closer and simply used his forward momentum to toss him to the ground. He got back up, super furious now. I repeated, I don't want to fight you. He charged at me like a bull. This time, I released the cocked fist, filled with Tom's breakdown, dad's abandonment and betrayal, and George's death. My fist rifled into his left eye socket, knocking him off his feet and flat onto his back. The wrestling kicked in. Still in slow mo, I jumped onto his chest and sat there holding him down with my fist above his face. He was holding it with both hands, trying to stop the killing blow. Say, Uncle! Kids were screaming and yelling all around us. He finally said, Uncle. I got up and pedaled home. Never pick a fight with someone who has nothing to lose. The next day, he was not at school in the morning. He showed up at lunchtime. He had just come from the doctor. Apparently, I had broken a piece of bone from his eye socket and driven it into his eye, coming dangerously close to blinding him permanently. The white of his eye was completely blood red. The school bullies now saw me as a threat to the established order. Every time I rounded a corner, some bigger and older kid would sucker punch me. I was tripped from behind and shoved around by kids I didn't even know. The next day, I told my mom I was sick and needed to stay home. There was a kid named Carson. Remember, this is about Carson, right? That I used to see at the bus stop. I had said hello to him. I didn't really know him. Carson was at the bus stop the next morning when one of the biggest school bullies, Mike Gordon, came looking for me. When Carson realized why Mike was there, he beat the snot out of him on the spot. From that day forward, everyone left me alone, and I had a new best friend for life. Carson Waters is that character we all have in our lives, or at least wish we had. He was not a great student, but he was a natural athlete with no interest in organized sports. He wasn't interested in anything organized. We learned to surf together. His fearlessness inspired me. We were thick as thieves. Well, actually Carson was a bit of a thief. Miscreant is the word. We worked on our bicycles together for hours at a time. Once he needed some handlebar tape for his bike. He attempted to shoplift it at the local hardware store, but the owner grabbed him and called the cops. He was taken to the station. They searched him, finding his switchblade and a silver cigarette case with a joint inside. Now they had him. The cop put him in an interrogation room. He placed the case on the table and told Carson that if he would tell him where he got the marijuana, the judge would go easy on him. Carson was sweating. The cop was called out of the room for a second. Carson, quick-witted, snatched the case, opened it, ate the joint, and licked the inside of the case clean and put it back on the table before the cop came back in. The cop sat back down and dramatically opened the case without looking at it. Son, you could go away for years for this. Carson just grinned. His Cheshire cat grin. Cop looked down at the case and realized his evidence was gone, and the hardware store owner didn't want to press charges. <laughs> this time, Carson got away with it. Grown-ups like to ask kids what they want to be when they grow up. Veterinarian, I used to say. Later, I changed my mind, lawyer, then musician. That would always be followed up by some condescending comments from the adults. But Carson nipped that conversation in the bud when he was asked, bum, I want to be a bum was his standard answer. That stopped the condescension in its tracks every time. Thing is, Carson was being sincere. He had no use for conventional thinking. No interest in goals. He lived completely in the moment. When we were in high school, Carson and I both joined a so-called service club called Big Top. All the other service clubs were offshoots of Kiwanis, or Lions or Rotary Club. Young Republicans in training who would build floats for the annual parade and tutor younger kids in math or something. Not us. Our sole purpose was to rent 16 millimeter prints of short foreign films and experimental animation and project them in the high school auditorium once a month, charging a buck a ticket. Because we were students, we could rent the prints for next to nothing, picking them out of catalogs with no idea what we were in for. For Carson and a couple of the other big toppers, it was a great excuse to get high. The Bunuel film, Un Chien Andalou, freaked everyone out when the protagonists slice an eyeball with a straight razor. I remember a documentary short that was shot at night in Australia in an area that was completely overrun by hundreds of thousands of rabbits shot in extreme close-up. Carson's little sister had wanted a rabbit. Her mom made the mistake of getting her a pair. They had a very large fenced-in yard behind their garage and decided to let them roam there. Some other neighbors had rabbits that their kids had lost interest in taking care of, so they were dumped in the yard too. In just a matter of a few months, that yard was filled with hundreds of bunnies. The rabbits had denuded the once lush lawn of any vegetation and stripped the bark off of the trees up to about two feet, and they dug deep burrows everywhere. Every once in a while, one would burrow under the fence and attempt to escape, only to be met by the jaws of the family's otherwise docile German shepherd, Bonnie. That's when we heard a rabbit scream for the first time. (laughs) One late and hot summer night, a younger kid was hanging around with us, a kid who was kind of cramping our style. This kid had never been high and wanted to try some of Carson's stash. Carson obliged and we had all been drinking cheap wine. Suddenly, Carson had a brainstorm. He had the kid follow him behind the garage, telling him he had a cool motorcycle to show him. The kid was both high as a kite and drunk as a skunk by then. When they are alarmed, rabbits thump the ground quite insistently to warn their compatriots, which is exactly what started happening. Lots of thumping, hundreds of rabbits thumping in the dark. The kid asked, what's that sound? What sound, Carson asked. I got in the act too once I realized what Carson was doing. In the faint, dappled moonlight, through the oak trees and Spanish moss, the kid thought the ground was moving all around him. Hundreds of dimly lit bunny ears appeared like some sort of furry nightmare wheat field all around us, thumping everywhere. What the hell is that? What's going on? said the kid. What's what? I asked innocently. Just then, a couple of the bunnies shrieked. The poor kid ran screaming out of our lives. I hope that kid's okay. Carson acquired a job as a night chef down in New Smyrna Beach. One very late night, he was driving home along the beach while on Quaaludes. He passed out, going 10 miles an hour, and his car drifted up onto a sand dune and stuck there, rear wheels spinning slowly in the sand. He woke up a few hours later to the sound of a Maglite flashlight rapping against the driver's window. rolled it down, and stared into the light held by a cop. The wheels were still spinning. That incident landed him in jail for a minute. Carson ended up settling down, at least as much as Carson ever settles, in the sleepy little surf town of Encinitas, just north of San Diego, while I opted for the wilds of Hollywood and rock stardom. Many years later, Linda and I visited Carson when my band Zuma 2 was playing a gig in San Diego. Carson came to the gig, but he said he was super sore and didn't know how much dancing he would be doing. He lifted his shirt and pulled down his jeans to reveal his hip. His entire right side was one massive bruise, shoulder to knee, he explained. He was riding his bicycle a few days earlier in the countryside when he saw a beautiful horse by a wooden fence next to the road. Not that unusual for that area. The Del Mar Racetrack is nearby and many breeders and trainers keep their horses in verdant fields there. Carson dismounted his bike and walked over to the fence, but the horse ran away. Carson went back to his bike and grabbed an apple out of his bag to feed his new friend horse came back. Now Carson is sitting on top of the fence as the horse is munching happily away. The horse let Carson stroke his face. Carson figured that the horse really wants to be ridden. Without warning or ceremony, Carson leaps from the top of the fence and lands square on the unsaddled animal's back and grabs hold of the horse's mane for control. Now chances are this horse is a full-on thoroughbred racehorse, given his location. He takes off like he is shot from a cannon churning the open field. He comes to a stand of eucalyptus trees at full gallop and pulls an abrupt left turn without slowing, hurling Carson at 50 miles an hour into the trees. As you might imagine, Carson's life has turned out to be a bit like that horseback ride. Full of thrills, unpredictability, with a hard landing. Years later, when his beautiful mother passed, he inherited her house in Daytona, two blocks away from the house my brothers and I inherited when our mom passed two years ago. He is set with no need or desire to work, especially in his old age. His lifelong dream came true. He is a happy bum. He fishes from time to time, kayaks across the river. He once kayaked across the Halifax River from his house and kept paddling up a drainage ditch for another mile or so to visit my mom in her retirement home. He always did have a soft spot for her. Now back to Johnny. Johnny Carson, that is. Even though we lived only a few blocks from Mr. Carson for the 12 years prior to his death, we never met him or even saw him around. He was known to be painfully shy, odd considering his career as a gregarious talk show host. My mom was out visiting, and I was giving her the Maps to the Stars homes tour of our neighborhood in my little convertible with the top down. There's Martin Sheen's house. That's where Bob Dylan lives. Here's Cher's place. We drove slowly by Johnny's estate on the bluffs of Point Doom. I pointed out the smoked glass guardhouse out front, manned 24-7 while explaining that we would never see him. An avid tennis buff, Johnny had purchased the walled property across the quiet little street from his home, tore down the house, and built sunken tennis courts replete with small stands for friends to watch private tournaments. There was even a rumor that Johnny had built a tunnel underneath the road from his house to the courts so that no one would ever see him. I was driving very slowly just past the house while relaying all of this to mom. Suddenly, she twists around in her seat with a twinkle in her eye and starts waving hello behind the car. Who are you waving at? I asked. Why, Johnny, of course, came the reply. I turn around. Sure enough, there is Johnny Carson himself, in full tennis whites, with racket in hand, smiling and waving back at my mom. That's the kind of energy and luck my mom always attracted. The 80-year-old Harvard study on happiness and longevity found that one of the most important factors for success in life happiness was lifelong friendships. May you all be as lucky as I have been. May you all have at least one Carson. Visible Arts is produced at Woodshed Recording in Malibu, California, and I'm Doc Somersen.